0: Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, episode number 19, Ivan Becomes the Terrible. Last week, we saw the beginnings of the change in Ivan's personality. He suffers through the death of his son, Dmitri, and then the shattering death of his beloved Anastasia. It is the latter event that begins the transformation of his personality from the Grozny stage, or Awesome, period. To the terrible connotation which history has tagged him with. The Russian lands had seen incredible changes, with improvements to the church structure and the army, along with the seeming end to the Tartar threat, the descendants of the Mongols. But with the death of Ivan's wife Anastasia, things were going to quickly unravel. Not only did his beloved die, but four of his six children from her did not survive to their second birthday. Anna, Maria, Dmitri, and Evdokia all died early, leaving only Ivan and Fyodor, the latter being of feeble mind and possibly retarded. This must have presented a tremendous emotional burden on the young Tsar. Now he began his turn away from the Enlightenment period of his reign by first banishing his religious mentor Sylvester to a far away monastery, then sending Alexei Adeshev to fight in the Livonian War where he was murdered. The two most trusted men by Ivan in his early days were gone, with no one to control him now. With Sylvester gone, Adeshev and Anastasia dead, Ivan began to let loose and fall into a pattern of depravity, debauchery, violence, and terror. From the deeply religious man who prayed his way to victory in Kazan, Ivan changed to a partier, drinking heavily every night, carousing with street thugs, and participating in orgies. Prince Kerbsky, watching things from up close, had this to say about Ivan. The Tsar came to detest the narrow pathway laden with sorrows, which leads to salvation through repentance. Instead, he ran joyfully along the broad highway that leads to hell. Many times I heard from his own lips, when he was depraved, he would say these things in the hearing of all. I must make my choice between this world and the other world. He meant the broad highway of Satan or the sorrowful pathway of Christ. Ivan, not one year away from the death of Anastasia, decided to remarry. This time to one uh, Princess Kochni Temrukovna, a daughter of a Circassian prince, the decision to remarry was in part pushed by Metropolitan Macarius, most likely as a way to rein in Ivan's increasingly unruly behavior. But this was not going to happen as the new Tsarina, rechristened as Tsarina Maria, was not a genteel woman. She was far more comfortable with Tartars than Moscovites. She was noted as a cruel woman, something I will cover in my upcoming Slapshot podcast on Ivan's many wives. The Tsar was now planning to invade Lithuania when word came that the Crimean Tartars were invading Russia from the south. Ivan ordered Prince Mikhail Voronsky, hero of the siege of Kazan, to crush the Tartars. Unfortunately for the prince, the invading army fled before he could engage them. Ivan was furious, and he banished the prince to Belo and confiscated his ancestral estates. Another pair of incidents which typifies Ivan's change occurred when Prince Dmitry of Ovchinin reproached one of Ivan's new advisors, one Fyodor Basmanov, by saying, we serve the Tsar in useful ways and you in your filthy so- sodomitical affairs. When he heard of the incident, Ivan poured a boiling dish over the prince and stabbed him, although not fatally. In early 1563, Ivan Shakhovskoy, during a tough winter campaign against Lithuanian forces, was beaten to death by Ivan with a mace, just because he was frustrated by the slowness of the campaign. This represented the first murder by Ivan by his own hands, but certainly not the last. 1563 was not to be a good year for the Tsar, as first his son by Tsarista Maria, Vasily died at the age of two months. Later that year, Ivan's beloved brother Yuri passed away. And finally, on December thirty-first, 1563, Metropolitan Macarius died. Months later, Prince Alexander Kerbsky, Ivan's longtime friend, left Russia and fled to Lithuania, not only to save his life, but because of his disgust with the Tsar's behavior. From this time on, Kurbsky and Ivan would trade letters back and forth in what would be known to history as being one of the greatest collections of correspondence in existence between two historical figures. It helps paint the times of Ivan with far greater detail than any chronicle we have. Then, without warning, Ivan left Moscow and headed to one of his hunting lodges, Alexandrovskaya Sloboda, about 60 miles away. No one knew why he left or what his motivation for the abandonment of Moscow was. From the boyars to the peasants, all were concerned and nervous. After a month of waiting, two letters arrived in the capital. That was to change Russia forever. The first letter was an angry vitriolic one, which was written to the new metropolitan Afanasi, blaming the boyars and the clergy for all the problems in Russia and that Ivan was going to advocate the throne. The second letter was written to and read to the Russian people. In it, he made it clear that they were not to blame for the ills of the nation and his unhappiness. In all the years of Moscow's ascension to becoming the leader of the Russian cities, the Grand Prince had always had to share power with the boyars as they ran the day-to-day operations of the government. There was always a about a tense little peace between the two. But now these tensions were about to boil over as Ivan had laid down the gauntlet to the boyars. The people panicked as they were fearful that the boyars would rule the roost and take advantage of the people again as they did when Ivan was a boy. They were in the streets, becoming more and more agitated with each passing day. The boyars were now caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place let Ivan come back and face his wrath, or leave him be and face the increasingly hostile people. The boyars, although knowing they were facing an uncertain future if the Tsar returned, chose this option as the threat of a full-scale riot by the people, and the army was inevitable. It could spell their doom. Even with the specter of Ivan's anger hanging over their heads, a delegation of mostly boyars made their way to Ivan to beg for his return. He refused and played a waiting game with them. They negotiated back and forth, but Ivan was determined to have his way, and that way was to be known as the Oprichnina. What Ivan demanded and got by threatening to advocate the throne was twofold. First, he wanted the power without question to punish anyone he deemed disloyal. And secondly, he would have a separate state within Russia that was his and his alone. By agreeing to Ivan's demands, he was no longer held in check. Finally, he could get revenge on the boyars who tortured him as a child. The Oprichnina gave him this ability, and with it, the loyal enforcers, the Oprichniki, would make it real. With absolute power in his hands, Ivan wasted no time in unleashing his anger at the boyars. First to face the wrath was Prince Alexander Gorbati Shuisky and his 17-year-old son who he had arrested and executed. What stunned the people of Moscow was that Gorbati Shuisky was a hero of the Battle of Kazan and was related by marriage to Ivan's first wife, Anastasia. Prince Peter Gorensky was next up, as he was accused of plotting against the Tsar. He was executed, impaled, and had 50 of his entourage executed as well. Prince Simeon Rostovsky was now a target. He was overheard saying some rather unflattering comments about the Tsar. Members of the Uprochniki took him to the river, cut a hole in the frozen ice, beheaded him, and threw his body into the water they returned to Moscow with his head and presented it to Ivan. Looking at the head, Ivan was said to have uttered, Head, head, you with the crooked nose. You were very thirsty for blood while you were alive, but now that you are dead, you will quench your thirst in water. He then kicked the head and ordered it to be thrown into the river. The reign of terror had begun. Blood was to flow throughout Russia for the next seven years. Life in Russia and the very fabric of society was to change in such a way that it would influence the nation and its rulers for almost 400 years. Next week, we recant the reign of terror, which will take the lives of countless innocent people and help steer Russia into a perilous age that will put the country on the precipice of destruction. Also, I will be posting two Slapshot podcasts this next week. One will be on The Many Wives of uh, Ivan, and secondly, I'm going to give a nice little description of the Oprichnina and the Oprachniki. That way, we won't have to put it into, uh, you know, you'll understand the context of what we're going to be discussing this week and next. So now for this week in Russian history, for the week of September 5th through the 11th. In 1380, we have the Battle of Kulikova, where Russian forces led by Dmitry Donskoy defeated a mixed army of Tartars and Mongols, marking the beginning of the end of Mongol hegemony. In 1514, we have the Battle of Orsha. In one of the biggest battles of the century, Lithuanians and Poles defeated the Russian army. In 1666, Tsar Ivan V of Russia was born. In 1698, in an effort to westernize his nobility, Tsar Peter I of Russia imposes a tax on beards for all men except the clergy and peasantry. In 1708, Charles XII of Sweden stops his march to conquer Moscow outside Smolensk, marking the turning point in the Great Northern War. The army is defeated nine months later in the Battle of Poltava, and the Swedish Empire ceases to be a major power. In 1828, Leo Tolstoy, Russian novelist, was born. In 1905, in New Hampshire, USA, the Treaty of Portsmouth, mediated by U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt, ended the Russo-Japanese War. In 1941, in World War II, the Siege of Leningrad began. German forces began a siege against the Soviet Union's second largest city, Leningrad, which would result in the death of 2 million Russians, 630,000 of which were civilians who died of starvation. In 1945, as part of the Cold War, the United States troops arrived to partition the southern part of Korea in response to Soviet troops occupying the northern part of the peninsula a month earlier. In 1953, Nikita Khrushchev is elected the first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. 28 years later, excuse me, 18 years later, in 1971, Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev, Soviet politician and leader, died. In 1991, we have the Soviet Union recognizing the independence of the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Tajikistan gained independence from the Soviet Union, and the name St. Petersburg is restored, restored to Russia's second largest city, which had been renamed Leningrad in 1924. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to visit the iTunes App Store and download the Russian Rulers app. And please visit the websites at RussianRulers.podhoster.com. Become a Facebook friend at Russian Rulers History Podcast ask a question, make a suggestion, and please leave a comment, which really helps make these podcasts exciting for me, as I truly enjoy hearing from you, the listener. And, as always, до and es спасибо большое.